Hello, welcome to Bible Marathon and it's dinner time. The word of God we believe is the best sustenance for the spirit, which is why we are taking our time to study and dine on the word of God. So, join us at the table for word dinner. Let's start. Okay, so, thank you Lord Jesus. Romans chapter 1 is Paul's introduction to his gospel presentation. He goes a little bit to say why he's writing the letter, ultimately to show the plan of God in salvation. So you must not forget that that's his He goes later in chapter 1 to talk about the problem. The wrath of God is exposed on everyone who is living in ungodliness and unrighteousness. And ultimately, God has pushed people in their rebellion further into their rebellion. So if they rebel and they decide to worship um, everything else apart from God... Well, God gives them over to their desires. And basically, he, Paul is just showing how terrible it is when, you know, people decide to go on their, on their own way. Things go bad and ultimately God's wrath is poured out on them. So they deserve judgment, right? But chapter 2 is Paul now saying, well, you may think these guys are also, you know, these are just unbelievers, barbarians, people that don't care about God. But chapter 2 is now like, hey, you guys are not excluded from this, right? You Jews, by the way, because the, ex- the, the idea someone was going to have is, well, everyone is guilty, but except us. But Paul comes and says, oh, no, that's not how it works. He says, those of you who pass judgment on others, use yourself are guilty as others are, right? So that's what chapter 2 is really about, talking about there's no difference between you who are circumcised and those who are uncircumcised. And so he says in verse 9, there will be suffering and pain for all those who do evil to the Jew and the Gentiles. So this is just to equalize the playing field, right? Jews always thought they were superior. Gentiles thought they were, you know, any, I don't know what they thought, but basically Paul was trying to say Jews and Gentiles, you are the same. You are both guilty. And so he comes to chapter 3 and establishes. This is a brief summary, guys. Very brief, but hope you get the picture. So he comes here and says, well, do Jews have any advantage of being in being Jews? And he says, yes, because they have the law. They have all these things that makes them know that they have a relationship with God or that they can experience a relationship with God. The Gentiles did not have that. But the Jews are making a mess of that opportunity right? Because they think that they are better just because they are Jews. And Paul tries to tell them, hey, everyone is guilty. There is no one righteous. So he comes all the way to establish in the very popular verse that we know, everyone has sinned and has fallen short of the glory of God, right? But then he switches over to the gospel and this is where he starts teaching the gospel. God's grace or free gift of God's grace is to bring people back to God by faith in Jesus Christ. So that's the premise of the book of Romans so far, right? Everyone is guilty, but everyone can also have access to, all right? Are you guys together so far? And he explains how this happens. Jesus is the one that gives himself as a propitiation for the sin of the world. Chapter four is Paul's way of giving credence to what he just said, because someone can be like, okay, why is it faith? I've worked so hard as a Jew. Why are you just telling me that it's just faith? I need to, you know, be, become saved or to be in God's in right standing with God. Well, Paul says, look at our forefathers. What did Abraham find? Abraham was declared righteous, not by the works he did, but because he obeyed and believed God. 
when God said, look at the stars, these are the number of the kids you have. And he said, the Bible says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Wow, just like that. And then David also saw in the future that there was going to be someone or people who will be made righteous apart from anything they do. So Paul is basically using chapter 4 to explain extensively that because Abraham knew about it, David knew about it, it's not a new thing. It has always been by faith. So he's not just creating this all from the start, all right? And then we go to chapter 5 where Paul wants to show us what Jesus did. That it was when we're helpless, Christ died for everyone, the wicked and those who deserve judgment. Jesus Christ died for them. But then he doesn't stop there. He starts to show the contrast between the man, the first man, Adam, and the second man, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus represents a new kind of man. So he says, when the first man died, he um, sinned, sorry, he brought death to the world. But there's a new man who is going to bring righteousness. And so he contrasts the two men, just so that people have a clear understanding that even though you are born in sin and you deserve to die by the actions of sin you commit, following after your first Adam, the first man, you can also have righteousness and live in perfect, have perfect eternal life if you belong to the second man. But the question is, how do you belong to the second man? One key word, baptism. Not water baptism, but baptism, meaning being put into the new man. The first man, you were born naturally. You did not have to do anything per se. You just were born and you took the, the, the sin and the effect of sin, right? Everyone is bound to die. But when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, now faith is what brings you into Jesus. That's how, it's your faith that causes you to be baptized into Christ. So when you are baptized into Christ, you now have that new life. And that's what chapter 6 is talking about. That because you have a new life, because Jesus Christ has bought, paid for you, you can experience all this. But someone might have a question and say, so if we have all these free things, we don't have to work for it, we just have to believe and we'll be a part of it. Can we now continue to sin so that we experience more of this God's beautiful grace and he says no you are dead to sin don't live that way right and so that's the whole argument in romans 6 how am i doing so far I, I need someone to be able to do this by the end of romans so you guys should not don't feel like this is something only ns can do please you guys should know that one day i'm going to ask you when we are done all right and so we go to that popular verse in Roma, romans chapter 6 right romans chapter 6 from verse 23 right? The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. That's another powerful statement because what you deserve for sinning, your wages for sinning is death, but God's free gift is eternal life. You don't have to work hard for it. All you have to do is believe it's a free gift and you receive it. Now, the next thing is chapter seven. And Paul is trying to talk about the contrast between a man walking and living by the spirit, which is what we should be doing in Christ. Versus the man that is not walking by the Spirit. The, the carnal man, the man that is not um, in the Spirit. So you see that conflict. It says, there's a law at work in my body. I want to do what is right. But what keeps happening is I keep doing the wrong thing over and over again. I'm a wretched man. Who can save me from this body of death? And I explained that the body of death is that is symbolic of you know, a man attached to you or someone attached to you that is literally dead, but is attached to you. So you many times will feel the influence of that body, but it's the body of death. It's dead. And so you have an instruction, 
by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 that you are supposed to kill that dead man. Don't be controlled by your human nature. Be controlled by the Spirit. If you allow the Spirit to rule, you will experience all that Christ has already paid for. And that's the whole argument of Romans 8. Jesus has paid for you, which means that you don't have to die. Jesus has paid for you, so the Spirit has come to dwell in you. And the Spirit is life because um, you have been made right with God, right? The Spirit is at work in you. That same Spirit will raise you up from the dead when Christ returns. And then he says, you don't have an obligation to live according to the flesh. In other words, the victory you have experienced is by putting your faith in Jesus. This is the victory that overcomes the world. The Bible says, even our faith. Have you seen that verse before? It is our faith that overcomes the world. So everything that we could have been, you know, so everything that we would have received because of the fall of man, we've been exempted from it by faith in Christ. We, we will not experience eternal death. Instead, we will live forever because we've been brought into Christ. And then, <sighs> Romans 8 ends on a very beautiful note. What will separate us from the love of Christ? You know, nothing can separate us. God has given his best. How much more will he give us all things, right? God will not condemn. Who is going to condemn you when it is the same person who has the right to condemn that has given you Jesus? That's kind of like his argument. Who will condemn you? It cannot be Jesus Christ who died, right? He was raised to life. He's sitting at the right hand of God. He's the one interceding for you. Why would you be judged anymore? Right? That's how he ends it. And he says, what can separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. Nothing we experience can separate us from the love of Christ. And then we go all the way and then, you know, beautiful promises. And then Paul now switches up in Romans 9 and verse 1 says, by the way, if you just joined us, I'm doing a brief commentary on all we've studied so far so we can complete our teaching in Romans 11 today. All right, I just want you to have that backstory. So that's what I'm doing. Romans 9 is Paul now saying, okay, well, here's the thing. I've said all this beautiful stuff, but this gospel came from Jew the Jews. This gospel started with them. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had many children. Out of those children, Jacob is also Israel, by the way. He had Judah. Judah, on that line, David came. And God had already promised, you know, Abraham a lot of amazing blessings that these people would be, they would live forever. They would experience his goodness and all of that. So what is happening that the Jews themselves, who were supposed to be enjoying this beautiful, good news, are rejecting it. So Paul is now like, I am, I wish, you know, I could basically, in a sense, be under God's curse and be separated from Christ so that these people will come in. And he's like, they are God's people, you know, God had already worked with them, giving them great promises. They, they descended from the famous Hebrew ancestors, that's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And then he starts everything he's going to teach for the rest of chapter 9, 10, and 11. It's based on this, that God's promise has not failed because God actually promised he will save Israel. Like, that was what he told Abraham. He said, your seed, I will bless your seed. I will bless you and I will multiply your seed. And everyone on the earth, basically, through you will be blessed. And blessing is talking about, I'm, I'm, I've done a teaching on this before, but it's, it's talking about people receiving righteousness by faith. Standing, standing with God is right. God sees them as right standing. That's the meaning of being blessed in God's eyes. It's not financial. 
even though that's one sense of the blessing of God. It's not health, even though that's one sense of the blessing of God. It's ultimately God preserving you eternally so you can live forever with him. That's the real blessing. So the Jews are not experiencing this because they are not putting their faith in Christ. So Paul is like, why? What's going on? And he's about to show us what happened and what caused it. And then he goes ahead in chapter 9 to talk about, well, let's look at the, the way it started. God gave a promise to Abraham. He said, Isaac will have children. Isaac had children through Rebekah. And who are the two children? He starts to show us how it, how it flowed. And that God was planning to save the world. And how did he accomplish it? He did something that proves that he was the one doing it from the start. He made a choice because God is God. He can choose whatever he wants. But he made a choice to prove that it is all about his own purposes, not about anything anyone does or not about anything special about the person. So what does he do? Instead of choosing Esau, who would have been the natural selection? Because who was the older older child? It was Esau. But God went ahead to choose Jacob. And said, before they were born, before they did anything, good or bad. Can you guys still hear me? Just to be sure. I feel like my network is um, broken. Yes, All right. Before they could do anything right or wrong, God just decides I'm choosing J- Jacob over Esau. Which would be very sad for anyone who, you know, if you're a second born... Um, you may like that, but if you are the firstborn and all of a sudden God chooses your second born or the second, your, your, your younger sibling, you may feel a kind of way. But that just shows God's autonomy in choice that God can choose and he's not choosing because, oh, you came out first. So God does that just to prove that he's the one in charge of his decisions. And that's why we have that text. Esau have I loved, Jacob have I, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And I explained this. I'm not going to do that today. But basically, hatred here doesn't mean hating for damnation. It just means I preferred Jacob and not Esau. And then is God unjust? That would be a very logical question to ask. And he says, no, God is not unjust. Because ultimately, why is he making this choice? It's for the salvation of all mankind. But God must choose. So there's no injustice with God when he decides to choose who he will have mercy on for the sake of his plan. So that's why he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I, I'll take pity on whom I'm, on who I'll take pity. So he now talks about how even in the reverse, not when it's not even regards to only salvation, but even in, in, in trying to show his power and his ultimate display against those who are evildoers. Because you might not realize that the same God who saves is also the same God who punishes evil because he's just. And so he shows that because of the pattern of life of Pharaoh and his rebellion against God, God chose to use that Pharaoh as a to show his power and to spread his fame, to make a name for himself around the world. And we know how that happened, right? Pharaoh did not allow the people of Israel to leave. And God said, okay, no problem. I will harden your heart so that you will actually experience all the plagues. So, and you will, your firstborn will be killed. You will try to chase the Israelites and you'll be destroyed. And they will have a song written about that event in Exodus 15. God literally wanted to show off. And God did that. And so he says he will have mercy on who um, he, he will. And he will make stubborn anyone who he wishes. In other words, he will harden the heart of those who rebel. And we know, I already explained that this is not arbitrary. It's not like God can just say, Tolu, I harden your heart today. No. God has given us an, a choice by creating us to choose right or wrong, good or evil. 
In fact, there's a scripture that says choose life or death. And he advises to choose life. That's the God that we serve. A God that gives us choice and um, the ability, the agency to choose. So Pharaoh choose, chose the wrong path and God went ahead to harden and ratify his decision. All right. Now, that's the whole idea of Romans 9. And then, so Romans 9, like I said, is not talking about um, um, election unto salvation or damnation. All right. That God just chooses people arbitrarily to save them or to destroy them. No, it's more of a choice towards making his plan come to pass. What is God's plan? That all men be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. How is he going to do it? He has to choose one man through whom, or a nation, one nation through whom his savior will come through. And he, had, he chose Jews, the Jews. He could have chosen Nigeria if Nigeria existed at the time. He could have chosen Taiwan, but he chose the Jews just the same way he could choose anyone. And why did he choose them? Because he had a plan to save the world. So that's what Romans 9 is really about. Um, and then he talks about how there is a stumbling block to the Jews because the Jews are very stubborn. Well, you know, and this is something that had been said in the scriptures because they had killed the prophets. Prophets came to them to warn them and they killed their own prophets. You know, So when Jesus came on the scene, who was the savior of the world, they did not receive him and they killed him. Basically, he became the stumbling block. And so that's what he says. He said, look, I place in Zion a stone that will make people stumble. Now, is God just making them stumble? We've already seen it. They are the ones that rebel in their heart. And God says, oh, okay. No, wala, I'll let you go ahead about it, um, with that. And he says, whoever believes in me will not be disappointed. That's in the rock, which is Jesus. Now, he comes to chapter 10. We read this and we understood that Paul was still praying that, oh, I want the Jews to be saved. But he's, he's now trying to show that the reason for their salvation is not that they, it's not because they, they, they lack favor. Oh, the Jews are very full of favor. They're fervid. They, they, love, they love God. They follow the law, right? But they were doing it ignorantly. So their devotion was not based on knowledge. And, and they were trying to make themselves righteous in their own way instead of trusting in God's own way to make them righteous. How do you get righteous God's way? Putting your faith in his son. But they rejected him because Christ is actually the end of the law. The law that they were trying to uphold, Jesus was the purpose of that law. He was the end of it, the, the, the finishing point of the law. The law was supposed to point them to Christ, right? But they didn't. And so... Paul now uses this opportunity to explain how people really get saved. It's by hearing the message of faith. That if you hear that message and you confess Jesus is Lord and believe with your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then he goes on and, and then, you know, just a very beautiful teaching he, he goes on to do. But then he now tells us that how are people going to be saved if people do not preach the message? Well, God has to... You, have people that will preach the message and how does he get people that preach the message he sends them and in a sense paul was one of those people who were sent the apostles were those people who were sent jesus chose them and sent them so in a, in a sense there is election god choosing certain people for the sake of others so we believe in election amen god chooses but how does he choose and who does he choose is what matters we need to be able to explain that carefully so God, <coughs> sorry, God will always choose in a, a select few, <coughs> um, sorry guys, for the sake of the many. He will choose a nation 
for the sake of multiple nations. And so he chose 12 disciples to preach the message of the gospel. So they have to be messengers. And so Paul is going to come back to this idea. Thank you very much, everyone. Um, and he just keeps quoting the Old Testament so much because he's like, guys, everything is not, I'm not making this up. God has already been telling the prophets. Like, for example, Isaiah said, who had believed our message, right? Because Isaiah too, by the way, was killed. He was bringing God's word to his people and these people were rejecting him. So it's like nobody has believed our message. Now, this message then contextually might have been something different, but Paul appeals to it and says it's the message of God's salvation because ultimately it's about God's plan. And he talks about how people should be saved, but they did not believe. So he says, did the people of Israel not understand? And then he now starts to explain what I'm going to be talking about for the rest of the time in in Romans 11. So we are, we are kind of here, right? We are kind of back. So Moses himself is the first one to answer. I will use a so-called nation to make my people jealous. And by means of a nation of fools, I will make my people angry. This is a prophecy that because of the hardness of the heart of the Jews, God will use another nation to make them jealous. Those people will experience what it means to have a relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then the Jews who have the holy scriptures, who have the law, will look at these people using the same scriptures. <laughs> and they're like, where are you from? You know, and basically that will cause them to be jealous and want what they have um, and make them turn, you know. And Isaiah even said something stronger. He said, I was found by those who were not looking for me. It's so interesting that the Old Testament actually shows what will happen. And it does happen. And Paul can point back and say, you see, it was said back then that the people who are not even looking for God will find him. Guess what? Those were the Gentiles. That's us. We were not the ones trying to see, but we found him. And so Paul goes ahead to now come to, you know, explain to us what happens to God rejects his own people. And he says, no. How would you say God rejected his own people? I am one of the people that proves that God has not rejected his own people because I am a Jew. I am Paul and I am a Jew. That means there is still an elect number of people God has selected, you know, preserved them in from being un, fully in unbelief so that those who are in unbelief can still have a chance. to. So God can make that kind of election just for the purpose of salvation. I think it's beautiful to think about. Everything God does is for our salvation. Like there's, you cannot read the Bible. You, you have to flip it upside down and twist it to see anything else. Everything God does is for the salvation of many. So you see how even when people were still rebelling, God had promised Abraham from the beginning. He's like, no matter how hard their hearts would be, I will still have a group of people that will believe. So he quotes from the Old Testament. that Even when Elijah thought he was the only one serving God, what did, you know, what did he say? He said, Lord, they've killed our prophets. They've turned down the altars. I'm the only one alive. They're trying to kill me. And then God said, no, you're not the only one alive. I've kept 7,000 men that haven't worshipped the false god Baal. And Paul says, in the same way, there is a small number left of those whom God has chosen because of his grace. Who, is the people, who are the people he's talking about? Paul, the apostles, um, other people who believed in Jesus at the time. In, in, a, in a supernatural act of God, in a sovereign act of God, these people are preserved from unbelief so that others will 
um, be able to come in. He says his choice is based on his grace, not on what they've done, right? For if God's choice were based on what people do, then his grace would not be real grace. Does that make sense? If God was choosing people because of something they had achieved, then it's not really grace. They worked for it. But no, that's not how we did it. So he says, what then? The people of Israel did not find what they were looking for. It was only the small group that God chose who found it. So Paul is trying to make that um, contrast. The people who found it were people who received God's grace. These other people hardened their hearts. They did not receive it. So God had to just preserve for himself people who will not bow in a sense. People who will receive the gospel. So it was only that small group that found it. And the rest grew deaf to God's call. God did not... Now, you have to understand the hardening of God. There is a theological term called judicial hardening. All right? There is self-hardening and there is judicial hardening. Self-hardening is the one people do. They hear the message, they say, no, I don't believe it. When Jesus was being crucified and they were asked... They were, he was about to be crucified, right? And, they, and Pontius... Um, the pilot, yeah, brought Jesus in front and said, you guys, there's Barabbas here. There's Jesus here. You know, Barabbas is a thief. This guy has really done nothing wrong. We cannot really say anything that wrong that he has done. Who should I release? And the people, the Jews there shouted, free Barabbas, free the criminal. <laughs> Go and kill Jesus. That is rebellion. That was, that, that's what it means to harden one's heart, Right? And it was the chief priests and, and those people then that really led the movement. So some, I feel like some of the people in the crowd were just, just copycatting. You know, there are a lot of people that are really not there for the reason. Like they, they're just there and they're like, ah, okay, our leaders, our Pharisees are saying kill him. They must be right. Kill him too. They don't have their own, um, <laughs> their own decision. But the point is, there were people in en masse that grew deaf to the call of God, to the true message of jesus right they did not believe that jesus was so what did god do god made their hearts dull and basically just you know left them in that state but to what end that's where we are going today to what end did god just harden the hearts of the jews because when you look right now and go to israel or you do any research israel as a whole does not believe in jesus true or false true what does that mean eternally for them if they do not turn and believe in Jesus, no matter how holy and righteous and how many laws they keep and how you know nice they live their lives and how prosperous they are in business and all of that, they will still have the same end, which is destruction, because all have sinned. Romans chapter 3 verse, we read that before. All have sinned. Everyone is guilty before God. Everyone is going to be um, punished by a just God unless their sins first of all, are paid for, and are all the sins of the world paid for? Yes. First John 2 talks about it. It says, I, Brethren, I don't want you to sin, but if any one of you sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He says, He's the propitiation for our sins, but not for ours only, but for the sins of the world. In other words, Jesus died. That's First John chapter 2 from verse 1 to 2. Jesus did not just die for the people he knew would believe in him. He died for the whole world. So anyone today who can put their faith in Jesus will be saved. That's the promise of Romans 10. If you confess and believe, you will be saved. All right. So it's so, so important to get that. But the Jews were in consistent rebellion, right? Um, 
So, okay, someone said, I don't know what I understood, what happened in verse 7. Okay, so I'm going to read that again. It says, what then? The people of Israel did not find what they were looking for. It was only the small group that God chose who found it. The rest grew deaf to God's call. Let me put it in the HCSB. I think you'll get it. <clears throat> Quick question. Praise. Who is the elect here? Amongst the who? The Jews. Yes, as, exactly. So think about it this way. The whole nation of Israel was in rebellion. They were the ones through whom Jesus came, but they themselves did not believe. So what did God do? God had an elect amongst them. That's why Paul appeals the um the prophets, right? The, um Elijah was running away. He didn't want to be killed by Jezebel. And he went hiding and he was like, God, they want to kill me. You know, I'm the only prophet alive. And God responded and said, No, you're not the only prophet alive. I've preserved for myself seven thousand prophets who will not bow to Baal. So Paul is appealing to that because that's what it seems like is happening in his day. That the majority of the Jews are rejecting Jesus. But Paul, who is a Jew, in fact, a Jew of the Jews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, believes in Jesus. So that's what election looks like. Where God says, for the sake of the Jews, I'll still preserve some of you. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I have a question. Um, doesn't, doesn't, mean, um, doesn't mean that we like, because every, all the Jews, yeah, so I get what you're saying. So what, what God did was he, so think about it this way. <clears throat> As God, I have no limits. What that means is if I want you to do something, I know how to create the circumstances for you to, but that doesn't mean I'm doing that for every single person on the face of it. So think about it this way. God has to bring Jesus to the earth. Supernaturally, he has to preserve Mary so that she's a virgin. Or Mary was just in a situation where she was a virgin and God chose to use her. But which one is more probable? Mary, the, the mother of Jesus had to be from the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all the way down to Joseph, who was the husband of Mary. That had to happen. Hello? Sorry, I just... Okay. Exactly. Now, that is almost... It's not exactly, but it's almost determinism, where God actually, because he wants to fill a global plan, has to strictly map out <laughs> the life and times of a group of people. You have to accept that. God, God has that power. And that's what Paul was trying to... Um, preface in Romans 9. Oh, that do you think God cannot just choose Jacob and, and not Esau? And so supernaturally allowed that Jacob will have 12 tribes. One of the tribes will be Judah. Like there's a lot of determinism there. Even though these people in themselves are doing their own thing. Look at Paul's election. Paul is doing his own thing. Jesus appears to him, knocks him down from his horse. That That is... I don't know what else you want to call it. And he says, stand up and go, <laughs> go and do what I've called you. To. So however you want to paint it, God is actually in this situation or in, this, uh, in these situations, unilaterally selecting some people to do the task. Think about it. Jesus chose 12 disciples. That's election. Don't think about it in this sense of, um, you know, this um, esoteric outside, like 
wow so this is a big like election is like thunder from heaven don't think about it to election just means selecting right god selecting people and create allowing circumstances to cause them to um do what he wants them to do. is that okay yeah and and the truth is sometimes we may want to take it further than that which is what the calvinists do. but i don't want any of us to do that because the calvinists to go ahead and say well if god could do that that means he's doing it for every single one of us right now the reason I'm sitting down here is because God ordained me. You know, the reason I, I, you know, fornicated is because God ordained that. And that's, people can go the extra mile with that. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible just tells you, if you sinned, it was your fault. You were led by your own desires and enticed, right? If you be- believed in Jesus, it was also because you heard the gospel and you decided to. So you must also see that autonomy of choice. But in some cases, which is what Paul is defining here, the elect, God allowed them to find the gospel and understand it and have, find meaning in what was written clearly in the scriptures. And he says, to, to emphasize that, he says, um, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that cannot see and, and ears that cannot hear it to this day. In other words, and he's quoting, so don't take this as verbatim, Paul's idea. He's just quoting the Old Testament to say, hey, here's what happened though. These people rebelled and God said, okay, I'm going to allow them to just keep being that way. And so God, for a purpose, remember, that's where we are going, for a purpose, keeps them in that state. Like, okay, you are rebelling. Don't worry. I'll hide the truth from you in a sense. I will block um, that sense of revelation from you. But not from every Jew. Some of them will see it clearly. Because what does he want to do? God ultimately wants to bring in the fullness of the Gentiles, which we're getting to. I I want to finish this thing today, guys. (laughs) But it's like we always have to go back. Um, So let their feasting become a snare and a trap, retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see. And then he says, now, with all of those things, you think Paul is basically saying, that's the end of the Jews, right? All these texts are very, very heavy, right? Let them, let their feasting become a snare. Let their eyes be darkened. But Paul comes in verse 11 and says, have they stumbled so as to fall? Certainly not. Meaning their stumbling is not altogether their destruction. They stumbled, their eyes are darkened, but it's not to the end. Like they are not always going to be that way. He says, on the contrary, by their stumbling, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. This is crazy. Now, jealousy is not a is not an evil emotion. Right? God God gets jealous. Do you know? The Bible talks about Jesus um, about God being jealous. What is wrong is envy and strife that comes along. So you can be jealous for something and it can and you'll not be a sinful um, emotion. Alright. So when he says making Israel jealous. It's just like to make them want something seriously. All right. Just the same way God wants our worship. Not, he doesn't want us to worship other things. His jealousy is for our good. Like he doesn't want us to suffer because there's nothing outside of God. So when you try to find satisfaction in anything outside of God, you hurt yourself. So his jealousy is a good jealousy. So this word jealous should not be thought to mean something negative. It's like, by their stumbling, God has opened the door for Gentiles. Okay, if the Jews are not receiving it, well, let's preach this message of salvation to the Gentiles, of the same Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of these people, and let's see if they will receive it. Guess what? The book of Acts shows that they receive 
and it kept growing. It kept receiving the gospel. Even till this very day, we Gentiles, we're having, the only reason we're having this Bible study is because of this thing, this text you are seeing here. If, if, if all the Jews were receiving it, you know, maybe everything would have gone fine and they would have come and preached the gospel to the Gentiles. This is, this is my, my theory. Here's my theory, guys. Let's say the Jews, Jesus came to the world as their Messiah. When he came, they received him and they accepted him. What will happen? I don't know how the death of Jesus will happen there because that's not how it happened. Because from the beginning of the world, the Bible talks about, um, you know, the death of, the death of Jesus um, being the propitiation for our sins. So that's one way that it seems like it had been prophesied to happen. Jesus had to die. But how was Jesus going to die? It would either be by um, the Romans deciding to kill him, or but what happened was the Jews were the ones that now killed him. Very interesting stuff. So the Jews killed their own Messiah. God raised him up from the dead. Let's assume they trusted him. They believed him when they were still you know, when he was still there, they saw the miracles. They said, wow, this is the son of God. This is the Messiah. They crowned him and they loved him as a whole nation. That would mean salvation had come to them because they believed in Jesus, right? It's all about believing. So they believe in Jesus. They trust in him. And then God gives them the, uh, gives them the spirit. So now the spirit is, is dwelling in them. This is just my, my assumption of what, would, what could have happened, a possibility, right? They believe the gospel. They're happy. And then the Spirit teaches them that this salvation is also for the Gentiles. So they, as a whole nation, now spread the gospel to the whole world and everyone is saved. Glory to God. Like that's, that's one outcome. But how is this going to happen if the Jews are not willing to preach the gospel? Which is what is happening. They are not willing to preach because they don't believe. So how is salvation going to get to the Gentiles if all the Jews do not believe? You see the problem. If all the Jews say Jesus was not truly the Messiah, then there will be nobody to preach the gospel, nobody to get the whole world saved, which is God's plan, that nobody will perish. But God says, okay, they are rebelling. I need to use this to my own purpose. Like, you think you are the one rebelling. Don't worry. I will use that rebellion to bring about something very beautiful, which is what God does. So they are rebelling against the truth of the gospel. God preserves some out of them that will truly believe so that they can take the message to the Gentiles. The Gentiles will now believe and somehow preach back to the Jews, you know, by just the fact that they are receiving this, this mercy and grace of God. And then the Jews will see it and be jealous, right? And so Paul's argument is if the stumbling of the Jews brings riches for the world, if what is happening with the Jews is allowing more Gentiles to come to the fold, how much more when the full number of Jews believe? Like, you get the argument here. He's saying if Jews in their rebellion brings riches for the world, how much more when they accept it? There'll be more preachers. More people will be saved. People will start to see the power. And just imagine a Jew believing the gospel. You need to understand the context here. The Jews had the scriptures. They knew the scriptures. They, as they ate, they ate, breathed, Everything was scriptures. How many of you have watched The Chosen? You know, I think they depicted that part very well. Where you see them, you know, quoting scriptures. You had Mary, the, the one that was possessed by a demon. She had this thing that she was always reading to herself. It was their tradition. They read scriptures. So imagine one of them now believing the gospel. Second Corinthians 3. 
write it down. I want you to read that when you have the time. It talks about the veil being removed. When the law is read, Moses, when you read the law of Moses, the Torah, the Old Testament book of Scripture, the Bible says their heart is veiled. They don't believe. But in Christ, that veil is taken away. So all of a sudden, when they trust in Christ, they go back to the Scriptures. They're like, Jesus is here. Jesus is here. Jesus is here. Oh my God, Jesus is all over the Scriptures. That's what happens when the veil is removed, when the veil is taken away in Christ, right? So just imagine what that means for us. I think it would be a blessing when we have Jews actually believing. All we have now is just Paul. And Paul is quoting scriptures and we are scratching our head. <laughs> imagine what it would look like when an abundance of Jews who understand the law so well can even show us things that we never knew about Christ from the scriptures that was really truly about him. That's what this looks like. And then he says... Um, I'm, I'm speaking to you Gentiles in view of the fact that I'm an apostle. I talked about this last week. And he says, if their being rejected is world reconciliation. I like this HCSB. I love it. It says, if they are being rejected is world reconciliation. So if the people, the Jews, it's almost the same thing he's saying. Is what is, their rebellion is bringing about world reconciliation. World here meaning the Gentiles, the other nations. He now says, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? In other words, this is a, this is a Jewish revival. A, or let me call it a Messiah revival, a Jesus revival. amongst. That's what it means when it says life from the dead. It's like, you know, the word revival, where, where, do, you, where do you think it came from? To revive, right? To bring back so, uh, from the dead in, in a way. So when we say a huge revival took place, we're just saying something restarted something that seemed to be dead came back to life and that's what paul is appealing to that imagine a revival amongst the jews where all of a sudden they just believe and paul is about to assure us that this will happen this will happen so let's go to verse 17 which was a hard one for a lot of people now if some of the branches were broken off we already discussed this who are the branches same paul is just using different ways to say the same thing branches broken off that the jews who are in rebellion Jews who reject the gospel. And then he says, you through a wild olive, though a wild olive branch, meaning you're not part of this particular tree, which I would think would be um, a fig tree because that's what Jesus always used illustration. I don't know. But it's a tree and has a branch. But you, you're a wild olive branch. You don't belong to that tree. You are grafted in. And now you are sharing in the things that the tree, the original tree, is given to its branches. So what the Jews were supposed to enjoy, you are being brought into it. Then what does Paul say? He says, do not brag that you are better because think about it. As a Gentile, you're not like, wow, I'm enjoying the graces of Jesus. The Jews are not accepting this truth. I must be very special. That's the temptation we all have. Right now, I think the church is in this, is in this state. How many of us think about Israel? <laughs> They are the people God started with. Don't forget, like they are a powerful nation. God has been fulfilling prophecies with them till today. But how many of us really think about the, the actual national Israel? Not much, you know. But Israel has a, like Ife said, special place in, in his heart. That's nice, Ife. <laughs> and, I, and everybody should actually have if, um, you know, Israel in mind. Because they are part of God's plan. You are, the only reason you are even saved is because... A Paul came out from Israel. Do you realize he was the preacher to the Gentiles? And maybe we can say 
a Philip, you know, to the Ethiopian eunuch. Maybe that's how we got to Africa. And there's a lot of stories on how um, the gospel reached us. But ultimately, it is still from Jews that the message got to us. So we must not despise them. So that if we have every, any tendency in ourselves to brag, we must, for, we, must never, we must never forget that the same way these branches were broken off by unbelief, we can be broken off. And it could also be because of our pride. And that's what Paul is trying to warn us. But this is not, um, this should not be taken as a text where Paul is saying, ah, you can fear to lose your salvation as a believer if you don't care about Israel. He's just saying, don't brag that you are better than them just because you were grafted in right you do not sustain the roots the root sustains you and then he says if you in your pride will say branches were broken off so that i may be grafted in he says it's true that they were broken off but how were they broken off it was by their own belief he says but you stand by faith don't be arrogant and i think this appeals to what i discussed last week there's always that instruction that please stay in faith, stay in a place of humble existence. Just, just be happy for what you received, thankful for what you received, and stay in faith, trusting. All right, don't find yourself being exactly what the Jews were, right? Don't be exactly where the Jews were. Where were they? In rebellion, in pride, in arrogance, because that's what it was. Why Jesus? We have it our own way. We have, we have the law. We can obey the law and we'll be fine. We are born, in, you know, with the um, blood of Abraham in our body. So we don't have any, we don't have to bow to anybody. Remember, Jesus was talking to the Jews. Do you remember this scripture in John chapter 8? He was talking to the Jews and they were saying, who do you think, you, you know, Jesus basically said, very popular verse, John 8, 32, um, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. And look at what the Jews said. I need to show you this verse. John 8, 32. He said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And then they responded. This is pride right here. We are descendants of Abraham and we've never been enslaved by anyone. How can you say you will become free? Like, why are you calling us, telling us to be free? We've never been free. And Jesus shows them reality. Oh, you think you are not free. Sorry, you think you are free. You are not free because you are a slave to sin. And so Jesus says, I assure you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin, which is the problem Paul has been trying to address. The Jew thinks they are fine. They're like, we are okay. It's like, no, don't think you're okay because you, you, Abraham is your father. That's not how it works. You must not just be an, um, a descendant of Abraham by blood, but by faith. You must share in the faith that Abraham shared, which was what was um, emphasized in Romans 4, right? So... Romans 11 here is, is, is basically saying the same thing, that you, you Gentile, you were grafted in. It was by faith. Please stay in that faith. Don't be arrogant, but be afraid. And the afraid here doesn't mean fear for you, that God will just break you out. No, it's like have reverence and, you know, be aware that God did not spare. Look at this. It says, for if God did not spare the natural branches, meaning God could have said, okay, the Jews, I've promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that these people, that their descendants will be fine. And God could have just said, in, in spite of their rebellion, I will not break them off. But God 
did not spare them just because they were natural descendants of Abraham. That's what Paul is trying to say. Just because they were natural descendants of Abraham and then they bought the promise, they were the recipients of the promise to Abraham. It doesn't mean that their rebellion just was overlooked, right? They still have to believe in Jesus. God is fair and just. You still have to believe. You still have to have your sins. So he says, if, they, if God did not spare the, the natural branches, he will not spare you either. And that's the point, that if you now come to a place of pride like the Jews, and you think you can boost in, in you know, your, maybe it's your wisdom or your smartness or whatever it is that you were able to find and come to Christ and start to, over, like, look down on the Jews, the people who God chose, then you are, at, in a sense, at risk of being outside of faith and trusting in your, in your own works, which is what the Jews are doing. So in other words, don't become a Jew in rebellion, is what, the, is what um, this text is. So he now says, therefore, consider God's kindness and severity, severity towards those who have fallen, meaning because they decided to rebel, this is what came about. And the idea is sever, the word severity, the root word there is to sever. What does sever mean? To cut, which is still appealing to the branches idea. We said, but you, you received God's kindness. And, it, and you see that clause, if you remain in his kindness. How do you remain in his kindness? Trusting in Christ. Trusting in his work, not your own ability. And he says, if you stop trusting in that Christ and his own work, then, you know, otherwise you, you too will be cut off. And I know we had this conversation last week, but I, I kind of stand my ground because the scriptures teach that. Um, as a believer, all you have to do is trust in Christ. And that trusting in Christ means putting your, literally all your eggs in his basket, trusting him for your salvation. The moment anybody, let me put it this way, if you find anybody consciously leaving their trust in Christ to go anywhere else, they need to be warned, which is why we have the epistle. Galatians is specifically talking about that. You started in the, in the right track with the gospel. Now you are going to another gospel, which is not another gospel. And Paul is like, you are bewitched. <laughs> he uses harsh languages, which is something we should be able to use to people who look like they trusted in Christ, but they are going away. So I'm not, I don't have enough biblical um, backing to say they are not saved, but I have enough biblical justification to say, reach out to them. Don't let them fall away, which is what this scripture is. Paul is not saying this because he is afraid that they will be lost. He's saying this because he wants them to be, you know, humble and resilient in their faith. That's what this text is really doing. So um, I've heard people from the other side who don't believe in um, eternal security or the doctrine of eternal security, and they use this text. But I don't see this text as Paul's definitive way of saying you lose your salvation. I see it as a warning verse because that's what it sounds like. You know how, when your parent is like, if you don't do this, I'll deal with you. It's almost like that. It's not like I'll deal, I'll deal with you and it means that you'll be dealt with. No, it just means I'm warning you not so you don't get to a point where this could be your lot. And I don't know with the abundance of all the other scriptures that emphasize our assurance and our security that this is really, this should be taken to the other extreme. So, but it's the scriptures and that's my responsibility with you guys is to teach you the scriptures, not my ideas, not my opinions. And so the issue here is unbelief. It says, if even they, 
if they do not remain in unbelief, will be grafted in. This is the balance to the text we just read. That if the Jews switch over and say, have been stupid, Jesus is really the way. If they don't remain in unbelief, they'll be grafted in back because God has the power to do what? Graft them in again. So that answers your question. That even if somebody were to, in a sense, fall away and they get back to their senses, just like the prodigal son did, the father is always there with open arms. Exactly. And the scripture that comes to mind, what Toyosi said is Galatians 6. If any one of you is found in a fault, it says, restore such one, the spirit of meekness, all right, and gentleness. Then he warns you, he says, be careful lest you fall as well, because, you know, there is that temptation for you as well in restoring someone to, to fall yourself. Um, and we, we can have that conversation another day. But yeah, I want us to wrap this up. I, I feel like we won't be able to finish everything. But it's the same thing that is going on. If you guys don't mind having a few more minutes just so we can know that we are done with uh, Romans 11. I would love some feedback on that if you guys don't mind. All right. Super. Is there a question or is that you saying yes? Go ahead. That's me saying yes. Okay, cool. So, let's go on, guys. Thank you so much. If you were cut off from your native wild olive and against nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I like this argument. Some of you should get it by now. It's like, if they don't feel so proud as a Gentile, like even the Jews, if they decide to... Turn, their, you know, turn from their rebellion and trust in Christ. Guess what? This tree was theirs to begin with. How much more natural is it for natural Israel to be grafted back into their, their tree? That's, it's just a beautiful thing. And Paul is just really using this to hammer it in. Hey, the salvation is of the Jews. Jesus himself said it. The reason you are in is because of the mercy and the grace of God. And you must see that way and you must appreciate it and thank God for it. It doesn't mean you have any less than the Jews, all right? You are the same. Remember, there is no, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. Gen, um, Galatians 3.29, neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female. We are all the same in Christ. There is no distinction, all right? So this is very important. And then, so that you will not be conceited. I, want, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. So Paul thinks that, you know, the Gentile has a tendency to feel proud and just take this anyhow. So Paul has to tell us there's still a plan. God still has something to do with the Jews. And I think this is going to blow your mind. If you've never seen this before, this will blow your mind. He says, a partial hardening has come to Israel until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. <laughs> As it is written, the liberator will come from Zion. He will turn away godlessness from Jacob. I love how Paul is quoting scriptures to prove this point. This, I think this is Isaiah um, 59. Now, let me address two words. I'm going to address and we'll end here. I, don't, I think I shouldn't spend too much time on this because time is already up. But I want to focus on two, three things. Partial hardening, full number, and the word all in the six. So let's do that real quick. All right. Because I think those are the problematic words, right? Everything else is. So he says there is a mystery. He says a partial hardening. So what does a partial hardening? It's exactly what he had been saying from the beginning. There is an elect group amongst the that has been exempted from that hardening. So that's why it's called a partial hardening. So it's 
is in a sense the judicial hardening of the hearts of the Jews in mass in as a nation <coughs> for a period of time, right? So that's what partial hardening means. He said it has come to Israel until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. So we know what Gentiles are, but what is the full number? Now, the full number doesn't mean 144,000, <laughs> as some people would want to. I, I, I spoke with one Mormon, and that was their teaching, basically, that there's 144,000 people who will go to heaven. Um, and I said, wow, that's a very small number. We are 7 billion people, so like... Are you sure all the 144,000 have not already gone to hell, you know? And it was just like going back and forth and, and saying a lot of stuff. I said, that was, that's not biblical. Where did you get that? They said, Revelation. I'm like, sorry, that's not how you read the Bible, you know? Um, they, 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 they've twisted scripture. And that's what a lot of people do with this topic of Israel. I want you to write this thing down because we'll talk about it next week. It's called, next week, I hope, yes. It's called replacement theology all right it's a doctrine of replacement and it's if i think it's false but we're going to talk about that in detail next next week so someone should remind me please replacement theology in summary it's the idea it's a belief system that the church has replaced israel like national israel and some people read the bible like that so anytime you see israel they just put themselves in so we do this in a way in our day, how many of you have gone to one scripture in the Old Testament that is about Israel and you just put yourself or you put Nigeria? That is not how to handle the scriptures. I am stepping on some tables or <laughs> breaking some tables now, but you have to read the Bible, first of all, in its context. Understand what it means and then you now know how to apply it correctly. So don't do that. Replacement theology is dangerous. It, it, it can be very dangerous because you, you, you pray some things and you're like, why didn't this happen? I thought I used scripture. You didn't use it the right way. Um, so don't do this next time where you see Israel and you just replace it with Nigeria or your life. Uh, some, some of those scriptures may actually be talking directly about Jesus and literal prophecy. So don't just do that. That's the um, So a partial hardening has come to Israel until the full number of the Gentiles have come in. So there's a, So when we say the full number, it doesn't mean 144,000. It just means um, God wants all men saved. And so God is doing things supernaturally in such a way that there will be the maximum, that's the, the, the theme of full here, maximum influx of Gentiles. That's why Jesus said the end will only come when. What was the, what was the criterion before the end will come? Who can tell me? Jesus said the gospel will what? Preach. The gospel will preach to the end of the world. Yes, in every nation. That's very important. So that's what it means for the full number of the Gentiles. So in a sense, what are we waiting for? We're waiting for the gospel to reach everywhere. Every nation must have had somebody stand on that nation and declare the gospel. That is when God can say, there's a witness this message has been preached. Everybody is now, you know, aware of what has been done. Then the end can come because now there is no, nobody can say, I did not hear. Nobody can say, you know, I was outside of this. So that's what that would mean. And when he says the full number of the Gentiles, he's talking about the other nations apart from God wants every tribe, ethnic group, nation and to, to be. At. In fact, Revelation talks about it. That at the end, you see nations of people from all the world bowing their, their heads 
um, to, to, to the Lord. Are there people that have died? Um, I've talked about this so many times. So let me finish this and then I'll answer that question because I know people have to. Um, let's finish this real quick. Okay, we read this. And then it says, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. It's quoting Isaiah 59 here. So you guys can read Isaiah 59. You see, another thing we've done. Yeah. Oh, all right. Sorry. Let's go back. I, yeah, I thought I thought I had addressed it by addressing full. But let me let me speak to that. Thank you for calling me. So, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. So all there is still the sense of the nation as a nation. So you know how you can think of Turkey or Iran as the Islamic nation of Iran, right? You see something like that. Or um, you know how a nation is basically has a religion and you go in there and you know that that's what they believe as a whole. Now, is it everyone in Iran that is Islam, um, that is Muslim? No. And you may, you may, you may argue this, but you can look at Nigeria and say, oh, Nigeria is a Christian nation. But you can't really do that as much. I'm just using an example that is very clear. Something like that will happen to the Jews, to Israel. I said, I said, but yeah, Israel. So something like that will happen to Israel, where Israel as a whole nation will declare Jesus as Messiah. That's what it means by all Israel will be saved. It doesn't mean every single Israelite will come to saving faith in Jesus Christ because everyone still has a choice. And I can assure you that not everyone will choose Christ. As we can see today, not everyone is choosing Christ today. But as a nation, Israel will be saved. So that's what, that's what this text is really referring to. And how do I know this? The text that follows is the liberator. Someone is going to come from Zion. Who, who is that? As the Christ. He will turn away godlessness from Jacob. So who is Jacob? Israel. So that's why he can quote that scripture. He's basically saying, as it was prophesied, that someone will come and liberate them. But it looks like there's still a non-belief. Well, there's a promise that he will do this. So Paul can conclude and say all Israel will be saved. So that's the meaning of all. It doesn't mean all individuals. It just means as a nation. Is that, does that make sense? Yes, thank all right. you. And then, let's wrap this up. I will make this covenant with them when I take away their sins. But because they reject the good news, the Jews are God's enemies. Same thing here is happening, right? When it says the Jews are God's enemies, is it every Jew? No, it's the nation as a whole. Their belief system is against. So it's the same idea here. Because they reject the good news, the Jews are God's enemies for the sake of you Gentiles. But because of God's choice, they are his friends because of their ancestors. Oh my God, this blows my mind a lot. Why is God choosing the jews why is god being faithful to them why is god um still dealing with them why didn't he just let them fall all the way and forget about saving israel because that's what they deserve the answer is in the last line because of their forefathers because god promised abraham god is so faithful and that you can almost trust not almost you should always trust him when he says he will never leave you nor forsake you i'm so tired sorry he will never leave you nor forsake you. You can trust. You can take that to the bank. If he says nothing can separate you from the love of Christ, you can be assured. Like, that's what this is. So, the reason God has not left Israel and abandoned them to perdition, to perdition and destruction is because he promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he must keep his promise. In fact, 
Hebrews chapter 6 is all about this. God wanted to show that he would keep his promise. So what did he do? He swore an oath and he looked up. There was no one greater than himself. What did he do? He swore against himself. The Bible says that in um, Hebrews 6. You can read that later on from verse 6. He swore an oath just to prove that he would stand by his word. He didn't need to, but just to prove because people value oaths, right? If I, if I swear to you now, you take me more seriously. So God wanted to be taken more seriously and he did that. And then... This is the verse that a lot of people also misuse, but now I hope you can see the meaning. I think I'll stop with this verse and then we'll continue next week because it's just a few more verses. But I want us to end it with verse, verse 29. And I want to ask you, what does this verse mean? Because a lot of people quote, the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. Let me put in KJV and let me see if KJV will still mislead you guys. But do you guys understand what this text is now in context? Who can... Tell me what Romans eleven twenty nine actually means. For the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. I think it's wouldn't go back on because if you remember um translation he used is a different word. So I think it wouldn't like go back on his words. Like if he promises you something, it's not something he will take back. He says it and it's going to I think in context, like he promised Abraham um that and that's what he's going to fulfill through Israel, no matter what they do. Beautiful. Absolutely. So now, does this text apply to other things? It can. But remember, as Bible students, you want to understand it in its context first. And then you can extend it. So that was beautifully put to your see. It basically means if God has promised a thing, and in this context, he promised Abraham and the forefathers, I will bless your seed. You won't, none of, like, I'm, I'm for you. Till the very end, these people will be saved. And because he promised Abraham, it must come to pass. And so Paul says the gifts and calling of God are without repentance, meaning God won't change his. So that's what this verse is. Now, can we extend it to say if God has given his Holy Spirit, he won't take it back because the gifts and callings of God are without repentance? Absolutely. Why? Because God promised his spirit. So you can take this with any promise. If God said, I will not leave you nor forsake you, you can take that promise to the bank. If he said, this sign shall follow them that believe, in my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. You can take it to the bank. You can say, yes, God will not go back on his word. And if you quote the scripture there, you will be using it right. So it's right understanding that leads to right actions. So you, you have to get this. All right. And um, I think I'm going to stop here. Any questions? Thank you guys for staying based on the promises in the Bible to us. Was there a question that I was supposed to respond to that? Yeah. Okay. To your C's question. Yeah. Covenant keeping God, yes, based on promises in the Bible to us. So don't don't be that person that makes God culpable for something he did not say. Because a lot of people will say, but God, you said this. You told me this. And my question is, did he really tell you or your mind created it? Because your safety net is in the scriptures. If you can see a scripture that, that speaks to you. So first of all, understand that there are some things said to Israel that are for Israel. And there are also some things said to Israel that is for the church. And the epistles help you differentiate. So once you can see a promise in scripture that appeals to you, then you can take that promise to the bank. Not every promise in the Bible is for you. Um, and this, these are things that only mature believers have to learn because the younger ones can just claim anything, right? Just how they say it name it and claim it, right? 
that's what people do and they just take one verse that doesn't have anything remotely connected to their lives and they just hold on their whole lives on that verse and and god is like i didn't promise that to you i spoke that to you. but there are some that extend for example i did a study on this and i felt okay this can be extended where it says i i know the thoughts that i have towards you says the lord thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end the future and the hope right that's um jeremiah 29 11 i was i had a conflict one day when i was studying it i was like can i can I quote this verse? For so I studied the whole of Jeremiah. I read that chapter many times. And I, I tried to see, is there any correlation? Is there any quoting of this in the New Testament? And I saw where the apostle Paul was thinking about the verse. I could, I could see it from my study that he was actually thinking about that in Philippians 1.6 um, and a few other verses. So I was like, okay, God actually does have a plan. Absolutely. Okay. And his plan is not of evil. God doesn't do evil. James said that, okay. To give me a future. It's hard work, but it's necessary work. To give me a future and a hope. To give me an expected end. What's my expected end? Hope of eternal life. Ah, okay. So I can hold on to that text as being for me. Because I have seen the corroborative. I've done a corroborative analysis. Is this talking about me? Absolutely. But I cannot go and quote, they pierced my hands and my feet. And say, Lord, all that have pierced my hands and my feet will be destroyed. And then I pray one red weird prayer. When I know that piercing my hands and my feet is a prophecy of Messiah. So that's just an example. It's a weak one, but you get the idea. So it's a challenge to you. Don't just pray any prayer. It's okay to keep quiet. I went to, I went to a church one day and the pastor was saying a lot of things. And everybody was shouting amen. And because I had studied... They were literally, guys, they were literally raining curses on themselves because the prayer was against the Assyrians, but they misquoted it and they were quoting it for themselves. And I'm like, oh my God, these people don't realize that they are literally cursing themselves and their generations. And I'm like, God must really have mercy. Like God really has mercy that those prayers don't get answered. You know, I can go on and on. So many scriptures that if you don't read it correctly, you may have been praying, <laughs> may have been praying some things, but God help us. Let me let me answer um this question real quick. Um, so are there people that have died without hearing the gospel? Are they are they people that well? I'll just take it as generic. So people that have died without hearing the gospel, what will happen? As you can imagine, that's a very heavy question. But I've done some thinking, and um, there is there are three ways I approach. The first approach is. No one is without knowledge of God, according to... So, now, are they, do they lack the knowledge of the gospel? It's possible. But no one, according to scripture, lacks the knowledge of God. Because all that can be known about God's power and his attributes are clearly seen in made. Romans chapter 1 verse 20 plus. Um, meaning that we can see enough about the creator... From his creation so we may not have the specific knowledge of jesus christ died for our sins but that knowledge of his creation and his power should point us to seek for him and in that case i believe to one degree god reckons that as faith and i'll explain what i mean rahab didn't know anything about jesus she's a hero of faith she didn't know anything but she just knew 
God that parted the Red Sea is the God of these Israelites. I must protect them with my life. And what do we what what do we see about Rahab? She's called a hero of faith. She's 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 applauded as someone who had faith, but she was not a Jew. She was not someone who even knew. She just heard about the power and the works of God and believed. And she's counted as one who should be seen as a woman of faith. In other words, we should expect to see Rahab in heaven. Did she believe the gospel in a sense? Because the gospel is trusting in God's plan. So um, there are people who came before the time Christ arrived on the scene that mm. are saved. What were they saved by? By their trust in God. Abraham believed God and he was counted. Did he know Jesus? No. He just knew God had a plan and he trusted God's plan. So... There are two levels. I just expanded it now. The first level is everyone has knowledge of God and it's, they are culpable. They either reject God ultimately and say there is no God, which makes them fools, as um, the writer in Proverbs said. Or there is a more specific knowledge of what God is trying to do, which is working through Israel, which is what we see with Rahab. So it's more, it's more structured. But you still have to believe in what God is doing, what God is doing, right? And then there is now the more specific knowledge. Now that Jesus Christ has come on the scene, you must believe in him. All they believed in was a type of Jesus in the past to be saved. But now you must believe in him, Jesus Christ, because now he has come. So going back to your question, you have to redefine hearing the gospel for every group. Now, people who are, this is, this is now this, I'm entering an astrology. And I'll back it up, all right? People who cannot hear, so they don't have ears to hear a message. Maybe they can't read. There's no way the, the gospel can be communicated to their minds to reason with it. Or maybe someone who is mentally unstable and has some, or their brain dead or something. I feel those ones are, in a sense, <laughs> this is me. Because they, they, they cannot, there's nothing specifically that can be held against, that they can hold that can be held against them, um, I believe God will be just and merciful. That's how I'll say it. So what I mean is God's judgment to those people will be fair and what you would expect a, a just judge. Um, and I'll leave that open. But there's another aspect. For those who um, cannot hear and understand... Oh, my video just stopped. For those who cannot hear and understand the gospel, is that, I think that's the first category I just described. They cannot hear and understand. So they, they, there's no way. So this will even involve children, right? They've not come to that age where they can reason, um, you know, what is sin, what is not sin. They have not reached what people, what people call the age of accountability. I believe these ones are the exception, like I said, and God will work in justice. He'll think in terms of, okay, the price was paid by my son. He has done the work. Sin has been paid for. There's no sense that this person rejected it. They didn't even have the ability to reject it. So I feel that this is my own understanding that they will be in a sense exempted. Not, it's not like God just passing over them and saying, oh, okay. No, but because a price was paid for them. All right. Um, so I would believe those would be, you know, exempted from, from judgment. But for those who have the ability to hear, reason, interpret, and then reject, that's a problem. That's where the problem is. Um, let me show you a scripture real quick. J- John, very popular scripture. If you don't know this verse, then I don't know how you don't know it. But 
most people know verse 16, but they don't know verse 17 and 18. And I think that just helps um, that nobody comes to the world with a clean slate. All right. Everyone is born of Adam. And even with the fact that they are born of Adam and they bear the sinful nature, there's a, there has to be an authentication of that sinful nature by their actions and their knowledge, which is what is consistent in the teachings of Paul and all the apostles. There is an action that follows that, um, that state that they are in. So it's the action that must verify it, that shows their rebellion. And I will explain what I'm saying real quick. So verse 17 says, For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So the reason God sent his son was to save the world. Now, what happens to the one who believes? He that believes in him is not condemned. So if you don't believe, if you, if you are here, you hear a message and you believe, he says you are not condemned. But he that be- believeth, believeth not is condemned already. Why is he condemned already? The verse says, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. So this teaches me clearly that there is agency and awareness and responsibility and culpability, right? That's what this looks like to me. It's not saying everyone automatically without anything. There's, there's a clause. It says, if anyone is condemned, it's because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten son. So what happens to a person who doesn't even have the ability to... You, you get my argument, right? Like, what what, what, what category would they be in? They don't look like they're in this category. So that's how I answered the, your question. Um, children that cannot reason yet, I believe the, the payment would, would be enough for them. I, I, someone, may call me an, someone may call me a universalist, but that's what I see. A universalist is someone that believes that everyone will be saved regardless of what they believe. I don't believe that. I'm just saying if someone has innate inability to, to believe or disbelieve, like they don't have the opportunity to even say, I don't want Christ. I don't think God will judge them based on that. But someone who does not hear the gospel, maybe they are in some remote village, the gospel didn't get to them. I believe Romans 1, 20 to 22 will apply to them. Do they have a knowledge mm-hmm. of God? They should. The Bible teaches. And um, God is faithful. This is why I'll end, I'll end it with this. God is faithful that he goes out of his way to make sure that people have a, an opportunity. Because by default, they, they, are, they, is, is, they are doomed to destruction. Like Because they, they are part of a lineage that has been tainted by sin. And God, no, no, the Bible is very clear. No flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Sin cannot find its way into the kingdom of God. So what's, there has to be a cleansing of sin. There has to be something done about it. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I've said a lot of things, but I hope it's... <laughs> Thank it you. It makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much. Yeah. You're welcome. Hi, guys. You guys stayed another extra 30 minutes with me. Thank you very much. I'm going to let you go now. Uh, let me pray real quick. Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus, thank you for this time. The truth is, Bible study takes a long time. It takes a long time. Paul was teaching overnight that someone literally died while he was teaching. Um, <laughs> that's just mind-blowing to think of how much time was required to teach your word. And Lord, we don't take 
this short time that we have for granted. We know there's more to be done and um, we want to submit to help us even in our own private time to dig deeper into your word. Everything we've learned today, help us to apply it, help us to think correctly, scripturally, um, wisely, and um, help us to not turn away from what we have. You keep us from falsehood, keep us from idols, Lord. Um, help us to stay strong in Jesus, precious. That was an awesome year. Thank you for joining us as we studied the word of God. If you would like to join the actual World Dinner Sessions live on Fridays, you can visit the link page. It's always on Fridays, 9pm West African time. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at bmg.global and see you when next it's dinner time.